my bookstore is open. It's about time. Everything that we've so far stocked upon the shelf is either my own original publication or literature which has greatly inspired my own research. There are already several books available for purchase and a great many more being worked on. I'm particularly excited to premiere a restored names edition of the Aramaic Targum, putting Yahuwah the Most High Elohim back into the Lord God. But then there are the volumes of extra-canonical literature which are already being put out, each of which comes from my own personal collection, is sectioned off by genre, and has been likewise edited so that names of its key players might be restored to health. And let's not forget the one you were all hoping for, Millennial Kingdom plus Mudflood. The wait is over. One of the ways you can support this ministry is by picking up your very own copy. I do appreciate your generosity. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome, Hebrews and Cheapers. This is the Diaspora of Yasharel, and my name is Noel. Thank you for giving me last week off so I could spend my first Sabbath with my baby daughter, Rivka. She is the most beautiful child ever and precious and perfect. We love her to death. So I guess everybody wants to know a little bit about, about that. We, of course, as you guys know, we moved out to Missouri to have the baby here. There was nothing, you know, it, it wasn't like a, you know, spin the globe and wherever your finger lands, that's where we were going to have it. We ended up in Missouri just by happenstance because we were doing research on the most free state to have a baby. South Carolina, where we now live, is not the best state to have a home birth in. And uh, Missouri just happens to be one of the, the last free states in the country and Lo and behold, we found a Hebrew midwife. It was amazing. My, you know, my wife is not a spring chicken anymore. She's forty years old, but you know, labor is labor only lasted five hours. And it, by the way, <laughs> Rebecca's in the room right now. I think it was uh, it was Wednesday night, and I couldn't sleep. And I'm like, oh man, if I can't sleep, I need to get sleep because it could happen tonight. We don't know. And I'm sitting at my computer and I'm talking to Rebecca about a, a book project that she actually just finished. And we'll be talking about that a little bit in the future. And right as I, I hang up with her to talk about some of that business, I'm going to bed. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm tired. And my wife steps out and she's like, it's happening. And I'm like, okay, I'll put on the pot of coffee. And it doesn't look like I'll be sleeping tonight, but labor only lasted five hours. And we, you know, we blew up a pool. I, I was commenting before we started to the group that I almost felt like I was in a Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movie. Like if you can imagine someone like running through the jungle to get to a computer to turn on the the, the system or whatever and try not to get eaten by a dinosaur. That's what it felt like for me as I, I'm running in and out to get like the hose hooked up and, you know, the hot water pumping through and, you know, turn it off and turn it on, turn it off and turn it on and all that. But anyway, she, she the baby was born in the pool. Uh, she, my wife, Sarah, like a true Hebrew woman that she's become. She reached down, grabbed the baby, picked it up, and uh, was able to see that it was it was a girl. Uh, so it was either going to be an Ash or a Rivka. And I, I don't know if I had mentioned this before, but when she uh, you know, go back a little bit in time, 
we didn't really think we could have children anymore. And our twin boys, they were born exactly eight years ago. And they were only conceived and born after several years of trying and trying and just total failure. We couldn't have children. We were in California at the time. And, and it seemed like all of our friends were like they were having children left and right. And they didn't even want children. And they would complain about them like, ugh. You know, I had another child again. It's getting in the way of our sex schedule and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, and I'm thinking like, why are we even friends with these people? And we were only able to have children through eventually medical intervention. Uh, we had to go get some help for it. And then we had the children. And again, we didn't think we would have children again. But there, my daughter Rivka is a true testimony to what Yahuwah Savaoth has testified to in Deuteronomy chapter 8, specifically verse 1, that those who keep his commandments, who guard his commandments, they will produce children. And so, you know, we started eating clean. We kept a Sabbath and so on and so forth. And, you know, she was a complete surprise. And when when the child was conceived, amazingly, Sarah had a dream that, that um, it would be a girl, that she would catch the child, and also that... The, uh, a voice told her that the curse had been uh, broken, or it might have been the curse has been lifted. And you might be asking, well, what is this curse? Well, there has not, this has been made well known in my family. There has not been a girl born into my family since the 1800s for several generations. And I highly suspect that it has to do with my, uh, with Rivka's great great grandfather and uh, his history in Freemasonry. And however, other many Freemasons before that. And interestingly enough, he was the last, he was born in the 1800s, but he had like 13 or 14 siblings. They were all girls. And uh, he was the last born a boy. And I, di I did the genealogy check and trace all the way down and all the children, all the way down, they all gave birth to boys. Amazing. So we were the first and that is that. So. Anyways, I just want to reiterate, she's been a blessing, lover to death, the most beautiful thing ever, and um, and Yah is truly amazing. So, all right, we are going to be going over tonight a document called The Torah Abides. Now, this, this document I've been building slowly but surely over the last several months, and what it is is each little article in there is picking a different... Uh, our different argument that Christians use to contest and say that the Torah or the law has been done away with. And I'm like, nah, uh, 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 uh. And I, all, all of it is just focused on the new Testament and showing how the new Testament points to the old Testament. And also the, you know, the fact that I don't even believe that the old Testament is done away. With. I don't think we're in the new Testament yet, or at least, you know, I'm a mortal, so I don't believe I'm, you know, in the new covenant, so to speak, but that's a side issue. So, we will be going over a, a, let me pull it up here, an article called Paul on Trial, Apostle or False Apostle. You can find it on page 43. I dropped, of course, the PDF in here and you could follow along. Now, as I was preparing to give this talk tonight, I wrote this really long introduction and I finished it. And I looked at it and I said, this is so lame. I'm embarrassed to give it. So I will not be reading to you the introduction. And in fact, this book 
contextually, it doesn't even need it because the people who are going to be reading this document do not know my history with Paul, nor do they need to. But I want to make clear to you guys uh, listening into this room right now, and also as this goes out to podcasts and YouTube land and so on and so forth, my history, and just be very transparent about it because a lot of people know, a lot of people have not forgiven me. And uh, you know, a lot of people have these ideas of what I believe that aren't even true. So I'm going to give, I guess you can call this my testimony. I'm going to go through this first, and then we're going to read this document. And we'll, you'll see kind of where I'm at now and hopefully where my heart is. I came to the truth of Torah in February of 2019. 2019, that was my our first Sabbath. Now, leading up to this, uh, I have I've already expressed many times in this group to the point that I sound like a broken record now that the first time I discovered that Torah observance is a thing was at the Flat Earth International Conference in Raleigh, North Carolina in November of 2017. And she's not here tonight. One of the first was Lisa. There, there were uh, many different Torah people that were wearing tassels. And I'm like, what? What in the world are these things? I didn't even know what a tassel was. I didn't know that Yahushua wore them. I I never heard of this before. I never. I guess I never read that passage in uh in numbers, and and so I'm like I'm asking these people like you guys actually follow the law really like that was all new to me and it took me about a year of investigation and over that year by that point over uh the course of 2018. Christianity had become paganism to me. I, I was in this really weird vacuum where I would pray to Yah. I, I'd call him God back then, or you know, I guess the Father, and I would say I believe that the Bible is true, but I don't get it because Christianity is just pagan. And you know, we weren't following the feast. I mean, not the feast, the the holidays. By this time, we'd thrown out Christmas years before, and and trying to figure all this out. We were still trying to give church, uh, churchianity, uh, the old college try. We were desperately trying to. I'd grown up in the church as a pastor's kid. For In my line of thinking, I had to push through a lot of indoctrination and thinking that if you didn't go to church, you're outside of grace. You're outside of the salvation plan. you got to go to church. That's you know that that's a must. It, it, I kind of have the right idea in that sense about Sabbath, but I was putting it into all the wrong uh, wrong ways, applications. And anyways, so it came down to finally calling. Okay, I was challenged to debunk Torah. Now, as you guys know, I was a writer. And back then, when the flat earth was really taken off, a lot of people were very, very angry at Rob Skiba. He was like a virus, a disease, because he was like the dominant voice in the flat earth movement, but he was Torah observant. And so a lot of the people who hated the law, who wanted it done away with, they're like, we need to get rid of Rob Skiba. We need to, this guy is, he's putting a damper on this entire movement. He was put here just to destroy it, all this kind of stuff. And so people are, are encouraging me to put an end. So like, as if I could put an end to it, obviously guys, right? And and I'm like, okay, I'm going to look into this. And it took me an entire year. I, it took me an entire year to try to understand the arguments and, and so on and so forth. And the book of Galatians, that was a big one. And finally, I'm like, you know what? I need to get on the phone with Rob Skiba. I just need – and now Rob Skiba knew. He knew that I was writing to uh, a hit piece. 
So why did he get on the phone with me? Like, it, it, it blows my mind that he took that chance. He took a huge risk getting on the phone with me, but he saw the potential in me and he invested in me. And uh, that that same day, I talked to Adam Fink on the phone, too. They were the two dudes, Adam Fink and uh, Rob Skiba. And at the end of the phone call with Rob Skiba, I said to him on the phone, I said, you're right. I mean, I was throwing all the same old tired arguments, you know, oh, but what about Peter's vision? And he would just shoot it down. I'm like, huh, I'd never seen that before. And at the end of that phone call, I was just, I was bubbling overjoyed. Like, yes, you know, um, you know, to quote, you know, Psalm 1, you know, blesses the man who delights in the law of Yahuwah. And on that, you know, on that Torah, he meditates day and night. And that is always what I wanted for my life. And I, and I said, yes, Rob, you're, you're correct. This is true. And the next week we went to our last Sunday church service and it couldn't have been any more ironic and perfectly positioned. The pastor gets up there and his whole sermon is on how that, that cursed old religion, that, that, you know, that, that law, it's been done away with. Thank God, you know, we don't have to do that anymore. And Sarah and I looked at each other and we were like, this is wrong. I mean, this is sick and disgusting. We got up, we left. We never walked into a Sunday church again. The next Sabbath, it was February, 2019. We felt like we crossed over into a new paradigm. It was, it was just the most, unbelievable freeing like you know with the people who think torah is is slavery man they they have this so reversed in orwellian fashion i mean it is like we were we were releasing the shackles of society and just following yah's ways and it was unbelievable so what happens when you come into the torah uh, especially with me, because a lot of people treat me as their special interest group because, you know, I'm a writer. I write a lot of papers and they there a lot of people approach me and they're like, no, you do some really great work and we really like it. But, um, you know, we, we kind of have this agenda here and we want you to cover this. And if you don't, then we're going to call you a spook and a shill and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and we're going to turn against you. They don't say it quite in that way, but it, that's how it happens. So, you know, when anybody comes into Torah, the vultures start circling in immediately. And that's kind of harsh, but it's true. With me, I think it was much more dramatized. And two of the big issues that people come in, and I'm not villainizing uh, these ideas, just so you know, uh, but they were very dominant. One was, you know, the calendar people, you better get on, you know, they would come in and be like, oh, you're accepting Torah now. How, how adorable. Well, you know, you're not really under God's uh, or Yah's graces until you accept my calendar. You know, that's the big one. And the other one is, of course, Paul. And so I was like, huh, I didn't really know what to do with either of those issues. And an uh, entire year comes by and we're now in uh, spring of early 2020. And at this time, I was interviewing uh, Adam Fink and Justin Best for a, a big project that never got published. Uh, I did hours worth of research and, um, I mean, interviews with them and many other people. And I detailed Justin Best's whole life, you know, his his like 50 days in the Battle of Fallujah and just the terrible things he went through. And uh, at the same time, I was researching, I started researching Paul and I was in communication with the individual who wrote the famous Paul uh, paper. And he he was sorrowful that he wrote it afterwards. and. Um, but we were in communication and, and there was kind of a whole movement that, that started back then. Some of you in listening right now, uh, might've been a part of it. They kind of got swept into this. And what happens is when you come over to Torah, you, you become very zealous, you know, you, you look at all the, the 
paganism out there and all the people who hate the law and hate the father and and you know and you you want to follow these instructions in righteousness and you want to do it right and you you start you start looking at a guy like Paul i spent my first year in torah defending that guy and just christians were coming at me every single day and going yeah but paul but paul but paul and i started finding that every single day was just spent the energy on trying to defend him. And finally it got to the point where I'm like, I'm not defending this guy anymore. I am so sick of it. I'm over, I'm over Paul. Like, you know what? The Christians can just have Paul. That was my whole thing. Like just, you know what? False prophet, just throw this guy out. Let's see what happens. Right. And, um, I was very, um, I was kind of quiet about it, but over at now you see TV, John Pounders was aware that I was investigating Paul and, you know, within the community, they all kind of, they figure this stuff out. And so I was on a phone conversation with John Pounders. It was, I think, the last phone conversation I had with him. And he gave me some really good advice. He was like, okay, whatever way you turn on this, um, I, I recommend that you take two years to think about this. Like, before you come out about it, just give it two years. And I told him on the phone, I said, I think that's really good advice. Now, I didn't say I would give it two years. But I said, that was kind of my desire, you know, to really think through this. Um, the problem is one of the things I learned in this is that, you know, you have to, you have to live by your word. You give someone your word, you have to follow through with it. There's a story in the book of judges where a man says, uh, the next person to walk through this door, I'm going to kill. And his daughter walks through the door and he had to kill his daughter. So the, the, the moral of the story is, is that, you know, what you say, you know, you need to follow through with, uh, your words are important. And I made a deal. I found out through my interviews with uh, Justin Best. And I, I'm not saying this is gossip, guys. You guys all know this. Uh, he was just so if anybody doesn't know, uh, Parable of the Vineyard is one of the biggest Torah ministries out there now, a very big YouTube following. And back in the day, he partnered with another ministry called Christian Truthers. And so you have Adam Fink with Parable of the Vineyard, Justin Best with Christian Truthers. And, um, and Justin, I, I found out through our interviews that he was also against Paul. He hadn't gone public with it. And so we started communicating about it. And we started having conversations with a lot of other people in the community and really excited with these ideas. And I made the mistake of telling him that if you go public, I'll back you. I'll support you. I told him I didn't want to go public. I said, you know what? If you decide to go public, I'll back you. The, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. And when he went public uh, on Passover week of all weeks, the worst week imaginable, I was so angry with him. I told him I was so angry that he did that. But I came out and said, you know what? I'm against Paul too. And I started putting out some literature. Well, for those of you who were in the shock and awe experience of all that, I mean, it was it was brutal going through that. And um, I didn't take it as harshly. Um, I, you know, I, I was kind of used to it, I guess, as a writer and getting, getting beat up for basically anything I put out there. I mean, there's always somebody who doesn't like one thing or another. And it, I guess I've become a little jaded. Um, but anyways, as, as time goes on, I started noticing, I got swept up in this movement and a lot of people who were, you know, in this group at that time, we had started this discord page. They were a part of that movement. And what I started realizing was that this was clearly an antichrist movement. Uh, there were, uh, I, I had never seen in my life so many people uh, turn away from Yah. Uh, within one year, uh, many of the, my contemporaries and friends and people who I was at conferences with and others had completely walked away from the faith. They not only threw out Paul, they threw out Yahusha, they threw out Torah, they threw out everything. And it was in the spring of 2020 where um, 
I'll, I'll go ahead and give this story. Uh, I, I don't like to, I, I'm not charismatic. I don't like basing ministries on, on visions or the, you know, words from the Lord. Yes, I do get words from the Lord. Yes, I do have dreams and visions. I don't share them because I feel that they're just for me. This I've, you know, sat on and I feel that this is for the community. All right. You know, my good friend, Justin walked away from the faith. Uh, he took a lot of people with him. I mean, and what really just bugged me about it was that, you know, the, the, the whole reason they threw out Paul in the first place was because of his rotten fruits on the fact that he came in and, you know, the, the Benjamin Wolf prophecy, he came in, took the spoils and divided it. And he was accused of that. And then they did the exact same thing. They came in, divided the flock and the sheep scattered and they never come back. I, it was one night, I think it was April of 2020. And I felt Yahuwah speaking to me, the, the father speaking to me. And he said, uh, he said, you need right now, you need to go outside. I need to talk to you. Um, and I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And as I'm hitting out the front door, um, Sarah can see on the look of my face that this is important. And I hear, I hear the father tell me, leave your phone. And I didn't leave my phone. I stuck it in my pocket. And I started walking. So I disobeyed his uh, his uh, his little order there. And I started walking out into the night. And I started finding within, I walked one block. And all of a sudden, I'm fiddling on my phone. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I this He told me not to take my phone. And now I took my phone. So I went back home. I dropped my phone off. I went on a walk. And as I was walking, I was all of a sudden just wrapped in this vision. And I was prostrate before the throne of the Most High just on my face, like spaghetti. I couldn't move. And I was, I was, um, I was feeling so ashamed of things I had done. And somebody picked me up from behind and they flipped me around and they held me over the, over Gehenna, like a fire. And I, I like, I was immobile. I couldn't move. And I watched as I saw the faces of people that I knew and I watched as they were hurled into the lake of fire. And the whole point of this vision was not whether or not Paul is a true apostle or not. And it wasn't even that I was responsible for those people's decisions. It was that I am, re I, I am responsible for what I teach. And people's souls are at stake. And this isn't a game. This isn't something we just, you know, what is the latest trend? Let's just, you know, go after that and, you know, and just chase this thing and that thing and see where we end up, you know, the, the next fad. If, if our joy is not in scripture, guys, if our joy is not in serving Yah, I keep saying this over again, over and over again, we're not going to make it. So at that time, I'm sorry for this very long introduction, but I think this is really needs to be said. So at that time, I, I repented. I got down on my face in my room and I repented of what I had done. I took down that night. I took down everything I had ever written on Paul against him, uh, my podcast, my videos and all that kind of stuff. And for the last two years, um, I, at, at that time, I wasn't even able to open up Paul's letters again. I mean, I had so many wounds and it was such a traumatic experience and I had to have those bandages healed. And it took a very long time. And in, in those two years, um, I've been praying to Yah, like, I want to look into this again, but you know, I need the clear, I need the I need the go from you. I need the green light. And I just never got that green light. And finally, about a month ago, it's probably about a month ago now, I went on a walk through the woods here in Missouri and just 
I just prayed to the father and I said, I, I, I don't care. I don't care what the truth is. I just want the truth. Just give me the truth. You know, I, I, I asked for wisdom that he would give me the wisdom on this and that, you know, I, I, whether he was a true or false apostle, that's all I wanted to know. And I felt like at that time, the father was like, okay, all right, you want to look into this again. Um, but the directions were pretty clear. The directions were that I was to go through a backdoor approach and not go through any of the research that anyone else had done. And that I was to, uh, interesting enough, I felt the call to look into the Church of Rome. And um, that kind of ended up in a, in a video I just released a couple of weeks ago on the Church of uh, Rome with the Millennial Kingdom, where I was looking at all the names of the people associated uh, in the Church of Rome. And it was freaking me out when I was looking at that stuff. I mean, you know, Paul's relate his like his brother and his mother and, you know, like uh, it. it I started making connections that Paul might be related to Yahusha. I started finding that the same people who were financing the Church of Rome uh, were working for the Herods, and those same people were financing Yahusha's ministry, and they're they're all interconnected. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Um, anyways, and so here we are at present, and we're going to be looking at the Book of Acts. And what really cleared this up for me? Now I still have a lot of questions, um, un unanswered questions, and that's okay. But it was the book of Acts where I, I, I looked at it with fresh eyes and I read through it. And I, I started asking myself, what is the theme here in the book of Acts? You know, what is the, what is the writer trying to convey to us? What is the underlying uh, currents of thought? What are the, the story arches? And I started discovering some. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I never saw that before. And uh, that started – I'm going to use the word freaking now. But it's, that started freaking me out too because I realized that um, – well, you'll see in this, in this paper. So since I have written this, I've been approached by, you know, different individuals who have, you know, said, yeah, no, well, you know, this has already been just what you're talking about has been disproven by so-and-so. And I'm like, well, okay, show me the research. And I'll go there and it's like, they'll talk about Acts a little bit, but then they'll just start throwing in first and second Thessalonians and first and second Corinthians and first and second Timothy. And I'm like, I'm not talking about those books right now. I'm talking about the book of Acts. And uh, so anyways, with that, let's go ahead and get started. That was the longest introduction ever. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I do want to say before we start that this is this is where I'm currently at. And uh, this is not a judgment on anybody else. The room right now is probably divided. There are probably, uh, I don't know if it's half and half, but there are people here who are against Paul. And there are those who are pro-Paul. I think our group has been um, very kind to each other overall. And that, you know, I have... Uh, I and the other administrators have allowed a lot of just open uh, thoughts and you guys are all welcome. You know, this is not a judgment on anybody. Okay. And everybody here listening to me needs to go into scripture and seek these things out and come to the conclusion, you know, do these things line up with, uh, with the, with the law of heaven, with the Yahuwah's instructions and in righteousness, because if they don't, then, you know, they're a, false teachers all right so here we go hopefully everyone has turned here we are on page 43 and as i started saying in the beginning this is a part of the document the torah abides uh here is where i address paul in the book of acts this will actually be a, a two-part series hopefully next week if i get it done i will be talking about paul and acts 15 the very controversial um passage on the Jerusalem Council. So just if you're waiting for that tonight, it's not going to be addressed. There's quite a few things that are not going to be addressed. And also one more thing to point out is you guys know that I have a baby girl that has been born. And so I think 
my, my writings going forward from this point on will be known as the baby Rivka era because they're very bare bones. And many times I am typing with my child on my lap. And so I have to get to the point very quickly. I, I cut out a lot of details. I just, I'm trying to get to the point. So it's a little bit more bare bones, but that's okay. Here we go. Paul on trial, apostle or false apostle. False testimony is responsible for the stoning of Stephen. That is our phrase for the day, boys and girls. False testimony. Memorize and remember it well. Stephen advocated Torah, and the Jews couldn't have that, given their track record for murdering Messiah. It's why he was stoned. You see, the temple controllers were making a case as to why Messiah and his entourage needed tossed from the land. If you recall, the northern kingdom of Yasharel were exiled, and a little later on, the southern kingdom of Yehuda as well. In both instances, they refused to repent of their sins. And so when it came with Stephen, he, his executioners went with the di diaspora narrative. Apparently, Yahusha and his co-conspirators had done away with Torah, which is blatantly false testimony. In actuality, the Jews are the ones who had already done away with it. They don't teach that much in Sunday school, do they? That Stephen was deemed an apostate due to false testimony. It probably has something to do with the fact that they happen to agree with his accusers, seeing as how they too have deemed Torah unnecessary for following Messiah. How sad. It, it is what it is, though. And I can only hope that my efforts here save one or two souls from the wide path of destruction. Here is where we read, regarding Stephen's charges. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the ruach by which he, Stephen, spoke. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moshe and against Elohim. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. That's the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Pause. The accusation against Stephen wasn't simply declaring Yahusha to be the son of Elohim. That is what we're often taught, but it isn't so. He was arrested for speaking blasphemous words against Moshe as well as Elohim. Blaspheming Moshe is the equivalent of inciting rebellion against the law given through him, as Korah and so many others had done in the wilderness. They were all killed as a result of it, and rightfully so. And just so we're clear, it is the word of Yahuwah who ordered their deaths, not the other way around. Moshe wasn't the one who opened up the ground so that Korah and his fellow rebels went alive into Sheol. And anyways, if Stephen were advocating that the law had been done away with, then they would simply be following orders as given to them by the Most High of Yasharel. Stone him. Be cautious before you come up with your argumentative responses. It says they suborned men. Every translation that I can find uses the same word. The definition means to bribe or otherwise induce someone to commit an unlawful act such as perjury. So they committed perjury then. The crowd as well as the elders and the scribes were stirred up against him, but only because they were lied to about the important details. They believed he was leading men towards the spirit of lawlessness. The writer of Acts is telling us that the complete opposite of their accusation is true, though. 
Stephen was in no way inciting rebellion against Moshe or Elohim. And yet the propaganda continues this very day from the pulpit. I wonder why. His obedience to Torah is all the more awkward when reading how they were not able to resist the wisdom of the Ruach HaKodesh as he spoke. The Ruach HaKodesh wasn't speaking against Torah. No, the Ruach was speaking through Torah and as an advocate of Torah, proving Yahusha to be the Hamashiach they were after in Torah. And nobody else was capable of keeping up. Their only weapon against him was a lie. Notice, though, that they weren't simply lying about Stephen. They were also lying about the Ruach HaKodesh to say the followers of Messiah were advocating against obedience to Elohim via Torah. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. Continuing. And they uh, set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the Torah. For we have heard him say that this Yahusha the Nazarite or Netziri shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moshe delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Supposing the reader should already forget that the stoning of Stephen was perpetrated upon false testimony, Dr. Lucas once again reminds us, dutifully so, that it is simply not true what the witnesses were claiming. Saying Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against the Torah was bearing false testimony. They knew it was a lie, but went ahead with their accusations anyways. And then it only gets worse. They furthermore claimed to have personally heard Yahusha say he would change the customs which Moshe had delivered unto them. Lies. Yahusha said or did no such thing. Had he brought an end to the Torah, then he would have been ad, um, advocating the gospel of the Antichrist, which is lawlessness, and couldn't possibly have been the Messiah. The Yahudim knew that, and so did Stephen. Reading on. Uh, this looks to be starting chapter 8. And Shaul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the called-out assembly, which was at Yerushalayim. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Yahud and uh, Shomeron, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Shaul, he made havoc of the called-out assembly, entering into every house, and hauling men and women committed them to prison. Who was standing among the crowd but Shaul, everybody's favorite apostle? The very Shaul who apparently wrote letters declaring, the law has been done away with, we... Look, either Shaul is personally responsible for producing the false witnesses, or he believed them to be true and responded accordingly. I have just given you two options. He was either lawless or lawful. You can't be both. Claiming that Shaul did produce false testimony, only to have a vision from Catholic and Protestant Jesus, who told him the law was in fact done away with in favor of Goyim traditions, makes no sense whatsoever, given the context of the book of Acts. If lawlessness is in any way navigable in this scenario, then what Dr. Lucas should have said is that Shaul and the elders of Yasharel produced a true witness about Stephen, thinking ironically that it was patently false. 
and that furthermore, Stephen either lied about Yahusha's intent or didn't receive the memo that Yahusha had indeed done away with the law, and what's more, that Shaul ended up siding with the very lie which he once invented, hoping to stir the crowd on every occasion. Ridiculous. But that is how we're expected to think about this situation. My head hurts simply trying to make sense of Antichrist theology. For Shaul to approve of Stephen's stoning, the most likely explanation, given the story arc before us, is that he was convinced that the false testimony given by his brethren was true concerning Yahusha and his followers. There were no letters written yet which might declare the law was done away with. Whoopee! All Shaul had was the Torah and the Tanakh to go by, and reports. False reports. Accordingly, he was doing precisely what the word of Yahuwah had instructed him to do in Deuteronomy 13. And so, a war broke out among the so-called lawless, the Christians. When was the last time that a war broke out without propaganda attached to it? Exactly. War could never exist apart from rebellion and lies. How many people are still operating according to that propaganda, I wonder. That is the entire story arc of Acts, you know. True testimony versus false testimony. It begins with the true testimony of the Ruach HaKadosh in the upper room. The apostles declare to the nations what has happened on Pentecost, and the prophecy, and that prophecy has been fulfilled. For the rest of the book, it becomes a struggle for the apostles to clear themselves of accusations all of which has originated with the propaganda machine. Even Kifa has to explain himself among Yaakov and the Yerushalayim group after rumors persist that he had given up a kosher lifestyle, which is in no way true. For the remainder of the story, as put forward by Lucas, Shaul received the brunt of those accusations. It started with his conversation and... Uh, I'm sorry... Uh, well, that's probably a misprint there. It started with his conversion and then haunted him for the remainder of his life, and even long afterwards up to this very day. The mere fact that we are having this conversation just goes to show that the ministry of truth was a wild success, despite Scripture repeatedly telling us to pay them no mind. Continuing, But all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name and Yerushalayim? This is the uh, after the conversion, so-called conversion of Shaul, by the way, and came hither for the intent for for that intent that he might bring them bound into the chief priest. But Shaul increased the more in strength and confounded the Yahudim, which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Mashiach. That comes from Acts 9, 21 through 22. The Yahudim who'd once sided with Shaul were confounded, but only because the town marshal had now reversed his position entirely, siding with the people he'd been going around arresting. He, he's claiming their innocence, not their guilt. The previous reports which had motivated him were simply not true. It says he proved that Yahushua was Mashiach. How would he pull something like that off exactly without first switching his position and agreeing that the man from Nazareth was the fulfillment of Torah? Or are we expected to believe he was still fall falling in disagreement with Stephen? That's the problem with Christians nowadays. They play a game of Red Rover, calling upon the Jews to come right over, and the Jews are standing there thinking, 
Why would I ever hold hands with your rebellion against the law? Continuing. Uh, this is still in chapter 9 of Acts. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Yahudim took counsel to kill him, assuming, assumedly Shaul here. But their laying await was known of Shaul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the Talmudim, those are the disciples of Yahusha, took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. In making the argument that Yahusha and his crew were dutifully following the Father's commands, he was in fact exposing the accusers. It was they who had either done away with the Torah or weren't keeping it. Therefore, the Parashim wanted revenge. Those are the Pharisees. Some translations say they conspired against Shaul, whereas here we read how they took counsel against him. Same thing. However phrased, it was the same old bag of tricks. Accuse Messiah of breaking Torah. Accuse Stephen of breaking Torah. Accuse Shaul of the same. The false testimony which he had once employed as a smoking gun would now be turned upon him. And look who came to his rescue, the Talmudim. Seems like they believed his claims to being Torah observant after all. And uh, now we're jumping over to Acts 14. I told you this would be bare bones tonight. And there came thither certain Yahudim from Antioch who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, or Paul here, he's going by his Greek name here, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the Talmudim stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Bar-Nevi to Derby. Wait, hold on. Wasn't Stephen stoned? Not a coincidence. There are various reasons as to why one might be stoned in Torah, but nobody is accusing him of rape, adultery, sacrificing to Moloch, or any other crime in the pages of Moshe. The attempt on his life has everything to do with Deuteronomy 13. Shaul is being accused of blaspheming Moshe and claiming Torah had been done away with, but those are blatantly false ones, or else their execution would have been justified. The mere fact that Yahuwah spared him from death testifies to that fact, in my opinion. If you don't think those are the reasons for the attempt on his life, then keep reading, because they have another go at it and even give their reasons. So this one comes from chapter 18 now. And when Gal Galio was the deputy of um, Achaia, the Yahudim made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, and here it is, this fellow persuades men to worship Elohim contrary to the Torah. There it is again, the false accusation. Persuading men to worship Elohim contrary to the Torah is language lifted directly from Deuteronomy 13 and no other chapter. At what point in Christian history do you suppose it was okay to persuade men to worship Elohim by any other law than the one given? Certainly not in Shaul's lifetime, if we're to take Dr. Lucas's account into consideration. Kind of makes you wonder about all the church leaders out there persuading men to stop listening to Torah based upon Shaul's example, but I'm sure that they're the exception to the rule, right? I said, right. Okay, reading on and uh, skipping a few more verses in 18. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Aram, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, Having shorn, having shorn his head like his sheep in 
and I guess uh, Centria, for he had a vow. And the, 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 what I want you to pick up there is the vow. He shaved his head for a vow. The first thing Shaul does after being accused of leading people away from Torah is shave his head. Why would he do that? It's a Nazarite vow, as if that's not suspicious. Seems like an odd thing for Shaul to do to, you know, convince the Yahudim or the Goyim to worship Yah apart from Torah and then go, nah at the accusations and take up the life of a Nazarene simply for the fun of it. What better way to show that he was set apart for Yahuwah according to Numbers chapter 6? Such a vow would have shown that he was in no way advocating that the law of Yahuwah had been done away with. He must have fallen from the grace of God then. That must be it. Apparently, Shaul was all about living in spiritual bondage, with his constant denials and shaving his head and all that. And wouldn't you know it, those very accusations followed him to Yerushalayim. Say it ain't so. So this comes from chapter 21 of Acts. And when we were come to Yerushalayim, so we here, I guess uh, Dr. Lucas is along for the ride, the brethren received us gladly. And the, and the day following, Paul went in with us into Yaakov, and all the elders were present. This is the part that really tripped me up, guys. And I'll be talking more about, I, I purposely skipped over, as I said, Acts 15. I'll be talking about that in Yaakov and why he is so important in this narrative uh, next time. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things Elohim had wrought among the other nations by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified Yah and said unto him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Yahudim there are which believe, and they are all zealous for the Torah. And they are informed of you that you teach. So they're informed, not through Paul directly, but through these rumors that are being spread that you teach all the Yahudim, which are among the other nations, to forsake Moshe. Now, keep in mind here, teach all the, the Goyim, no, the, the Yahudim, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. It is Yaakov who backs him this time. The brother of Messiah and leader of the Yerushalayim church transitions from praising all the Yahudim who are zealous for the Torah because of Shaul's ministry to addressing the accusations concerning him. But you are made well aware of them by now. Shaul was apparently teaching the Yahudim among the other nations to forsake Moshe. Did I miss anything? It's the same old, same old. And so here is Yaakov's suggestion. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that you are come. Do therefore this that we say to you. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify yourself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads. There it is again. <laughs> this guy <laughs> shaved his head a lot. And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly, and guard the Torah. Shaul was expected to shave his head again. And yes, that is another reference to the Nazarite vow, in case you were wondering. The reason why he would be asked to do it is even explained to us. Yaakov states it is so that all the accusations might fall to the roadside. Shaul did indeed walk orderly, guarding the Torah, according to this narrative. To walk in a disorderly manner would be to not guard the Torah, according to Yaakov. 
but neither he nor the elders of the Yerushalayim church believe that to be the case, obviously. Seems Shaul could never shave his head enough, though, because the accusations kept on coming and coming, following him in nearly every Christian congregation, even unto this day. Perhaps that is why Kepha thought to mention him in a letter. Now, you guys all know this, but I'll read it anyways. It comes from Second Peter. But, you know, this really struck me. I, I was reading this again. I was like, huh. Wherefore, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of Yahuwah is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, a lot could be said about that line there, the wisdom given to him, but I'll drop that for now, has, has written unto you, as also in all his uh, suffers, his, his letters, speaking in them of things, of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. So, speaking of all these things, what things? Of being uh, without spot and blameless. Uh, seems to be context there. Uh, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable pervert, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of lawlessness, fall from your own steadfastness. That, that last line is what really struck me this last time. I don't know why I didn't really pick up on that last time. That's what's amazing about Scripture. You can read it a thousand times, and then all of a sudden something just sparks. And um, it, it, But Peter there, I'll read my commentary, but what Peter's saying there is that the, the, the instability in reading his letters leads to lawlessness, um, to people's own destruction. Um, that's, you know... I. It is what it is. It's what it says. So it's it's not what Peter is saying is not the letters themselves. It's not reading it right, taking it out of context, so on and so forth. And I, I, I know that this is like for the anti-Paul crowd, it's like, oh, second Peter again. You know, it's like, I know I've been there, guys, for the last two years. I know. Anyways, did you catch that? Shaul wrote letters. But not only that, they contained within them some things which were difficult to understand. He then quickly claims that unlearned and unstable men would pervert his letters, just as they do with the other scriptures, and that such perversion would lead to their own destruction. I am often told by Christians proclaiming the gospel of lawlessness that it is I who does the scripture twisting. They will wag Kepha in my face and claim I am unlearned in my reading and that if I understood Torah properly, I would also conclude, as Shaul did, that it is to be broken rather than obeyed. I've had enough of these conversations, unfortunately. Well, isn't that adorable? Never one for confusion, Kepha goes so far as to define the error of those doing the twisting. Keep reading. He says, to beware those who would lead you away with the error of lawlessness. That is precisely what the masses on the wide road of existence claim. Kepha is warning about the people who read Shaul's letters and conclude that being lawless, which is the same thing as saying without Torah, is what Roman Catholic and Protestant Jesus wants from us. Amazing how his story keeps repeating itself. To claim Torah has been done away with because Paul apparently said so in one of his letters or whatever, is to agree with the same temple controllers who strung Messiah up on a tree. And that's going to conclude that for tonight.
we're going to move on, of course, very soon here to the Genesis Targum. But I want to give you guys the opportunity, anyone listening in, if you have any feedback, any comments, if you disagree with me, that's totally fine too. Just, you know, you could, um, you know, I could take it. Um, let me know what your thoughts are. And I, I want to remind everybody here that I'm not talking about Second Timothy. I'm not talking about First Corinthians. I'm not talking about Galatians or Romans or Ephesians or Titus. I'm talking about the book. I guess I did quote from Second Peter, but um, I thought that was important to the, the, the theme of Acts. And what I would like to know is, did I misrepresent the book of Acts? Because as I was going through, I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually the theme, testimony. False testimony, true testimony, and um, yeah. So I'll open up the floor, and you guys can talk about it a few minutes before we move on. Yeah, this is Desmond. I uh, I just wanted to say that when I first came into um, Torah, it was also through Skiba and Flat Earth started out with, and right off the bat, I was I just thought in my mind that Paul was wrong. And I was against Paul for probably a year and a half. And then I heard somebody do a uh, full commentary on a bunch of books that Paul wrote, Romans, Galatians, all that stuff. And uh, they convinced me and I changed my mind. But there was a time there where I was saying he was a liar and I definitely had to repent of that. And it makes me real happy to um, hear your testimony about your little journey through that. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of my, uh, if I could sum it up, a lot of my anti-Paul stance uh, was, I think, you know, zealousness on my own part, similar to Paul's zealousness, but reactionary, reactionary to all the people who are using Paul to justify their lawlessness. And I was just over it. I was so done with it. Like, fine, you can have Paul. I'm not going to defend this guy anymore. I've said that so many times. Um, and uh, I guess that's why I'm kind of like writing this stuff out now, just so when people come up to me with Paul, I'm like, well, here you go. Here's a paper. You can read that. And it, it's, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Uh, and, you know, it's, it is really interesting that we are only warned about one guy, guys, in Scripture. One guy who is very difficult to understand. And I think what I, I didn't appreciate for a very long time was uh, the fact that I, you know, it might that it was Yah's will that, in a way, you know, it's almost like Messiah is a stumbling block. Well, maybe Paul is too. Maybe he was put there as a test, you know, for for all the whether you believe that he's a false prophet or a true prophet. I think I think that the application still applies. He was put there as a test for you know you you if you're reading the book from the front cover to the back, you're going through it and you see all these instructions and Yah's like. Uh, like I quoted from uh, Deuteronomy 8 tonight, if you keep all these commandments, you will be able to enter the land and have many children and live a long life. Let's do our promise that if we keep the commandments, we get to enter the land. Even in, in death, we get to enter the, the, the promised land, have many children, so on and so forth. You know, he'll, he'll choose the, the blessings to the curse. And then, of course, you know, you get, you guys know all this story. You know, you get through the prophets and the prophets are like, Oh, you get uh, through Moses and the people were rebelling against it and say, no, we don't want this, Moses. We're doing away with the law. And then they keep dying off. And, and he was like, that's it. You're wandering through the wilderness because you're disobeying me. And then you know, the prophets, they come along and say, please stop disobeying, you know, Yah, he's patient, he's merciful, but, you know, judgment's coming, judgment comes, and so on and so forth. You get to the, you know, if you read this in order, it's almost insanity. You get to the, the, the end with Paul and it's like, woohoo, we've been freed. 
finally someone comes along and frees us. And it's like, oh, come on, guys. Are you guys actually reading this in context? So again, either he's a true apostle or a false apostle, but my, my, I, this is hard for me, guys. It, it's hard to eat my own words, but I, I agree with whoever this Paul was in the, in the book of Acts that, um, that if you have Yaakov backing him up, that was a, that was a, a deal breaker for me. Um, unless if you're if someone to say the entire book of Acts is just fiction, it's all made up, it's all propaganda, which I can't even understand that because if, if Luke is defending Paul as someone who is freeing us from the law, why is he going out of his way to write a book that says he was obedient to the law, but all these accusations are false ones? And it doesn't make any sense to me. It's propaganda. I, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but it doesn't make any sense. So anyway. Uh, no, could, could we agree in uh, summarizing that the possibility that Paul was a great disciple, not an apostle, but a great disciple, and that he he was a true observer of the Torah, and that possibly that the Catholic Church, when they put together the canon that is today's Bible, that they corrupted and added and taken away from Paul's works to get what we now have today that does so much divide the church? Yeah, I can agree to that. I mean, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, uh, undoubtedly, Paul's a patsy. Uh, he's a patsy for... Uh, all sides, really. I mean, it's it's almost like uh, you know the the was it the Depeche Mode, the saying your own personal Jesus, right? Like everyone has their own personal Jesus. It seems like everyone has their own personal Paul too. And I think that's what's really um, Paul is more difficult than even Yahusha getting to the the grunt, the meat of what he's saying. Uh, Yahusha is pretty straightforward, but people still misinterpret him all the time. Um, so. Yeah, it's very possible that the I'm open to that um, possibility that his letters were altered. Um, you know, I I I've haven't really gotten into all those yet, so I can't comment on that any further. Yeah, well, I had to... um, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say from, I mean, if we read the writings as they are presented in the Bible, okay, it, it, the, the evidence is, in my opinion, is overwhelming that uh, he was a false apostle, that he was anti-Torah, uh, because there's just so many different verses in there that show that. But then again, I mean, I'm definitely open to the possibility that it was all corrupted by the Catholic Church. But according to the books that we have in the common Bibles today, the evidence is overwhelming that they, he did a lot of wrong things because you can see many of his teachings that were in direct opposition to what the other apostles and uh, the Savior himself taught. Okay, so you, you bring up some really good points. And this is where... I probably should have summarized this again tonight because, you know, I have to be repetitive in these videos because I understand that someone is going to listen to this online, read this paper, and not listen to something I said on some other video. All right. So here is my view on Paul at present. He was a dude. He was a dude just like me. He was a ministry leader. He was someone like uh, Rob Skiba. He was someone like John Pounders. He was someone like, you know, you fill in the blank. He was someone like Noel Hadley. Um, Every single one of us are going to be wrong about things. One of the things I've learned to appreciate about the body is that you, 
everyone listening, just imagine someone just like on YouTube. Okay. Just imagine a ministry leader that you um, um, are gravitated to, you're attracted to. It can, it can be me if you want. Every single one of them, there are things that you are, you are attracted to them because um, maybe, maybe you're just attracted to a charismatic person and charismatic people are wrong about a lot of things, but that you know, people are attracted to the charisma, which might've been Paul. Uh, but every single person seems to have like this certain wisdom on certain things. Um, I had forgotten to mention uh, one of the other people I talked to, Rob Skiba got me in touch with immediately was uh, Lex Meyer of um, Unlearn the Lies. He's got some really fascinating things too. He's not right about everything. I'm not right about everything. So when I, when I, when I think about Paul, and I think this is one of the problems is when we have these discussions on, you know, theology is that what we're actually chiseling away with at are people's sacred cows. They have created these idols. Like Paul is a certain idol that you can't miss with the image that he was speaking the, the perfect words of the Ruach HaKadosh. And so what we're doing is we're reacting to that. We're, we're taking saying, Oh no, he's a, he's a false apostle. He's, he's the antichrist, right? He's all this kind of stuff. But what if, what if he was just a, a dude who um, was wrong about some things? He was very passionate about uh, Abraham's uh, promise that eventually the, the, the Israel would be, uh, through the Goyim, would be grafted back in. And he saw his opportunity and he went for it. Um, and, you know, you, you, you can give someone a lot more grace, period, if you go, okay, his letter, they're, they're just letters. This is not the Ruach HaKadosh speaking, okay? So that right there removes a lot of threats. And you go, okay, yeah, he's, he's a little egotistical here. You know, maybe he was narcissistic. He was certainly had a lot of signs of high intelligence, no doubt there. Um, and, you know, and just, you know, I don't know. So, so what happens is, is from an anti-Paul stance, I'd go like, okay, oh, look at this. You know, he's got this thorn in his flesh. And, oh, he's, you know, he boasts and he boasts. And, oh, he, you know, and so you're, you're reacting to the, 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 the Paul, the idol that is, you know, he is the words of the Ruach HaKadosh. And you're like, no, he's a false apostle, you know. So what I'm saying is I, I feel like I'm giving a little bit more grace. And here's one of the, the, the things that also tripped me out. I'll be talking about this next week is, is Acts 15 is, when Paul goes to the the Jerusalem council with the elders and they're discussing what when the goyim are coming into the faith when they're being grafted in uh what they're to abstain from right and you guys know this I'm sure and I'll be going over it is that they're all things related to the worship of other Elohim like in the temples like uh, temple prostitutes and drinking blood in the in the in the marriage anything to do with adultery with Yahuwah. they they refrain from that immediately and then, you know, each and every single week, um, you know, as they're going into the, the, the uh, not the temples, the, the synagogues on Sabbath, they will be hearing from Moshe. That, those are Yaakov's words, guys. And Yaakov is, is uh, I'll be actually quoting, some of you won't like this, I'm going to be quoting from the Gospel of Thomas. And it's interesting because in the Gospel of Thomas, Yahushua says that when he's gone, he says, if you want to know who is his representative on earth and go to, with any questions, it's Yaakov, James the Just. So that is exactly what's happening in Acts 15. It is James the Just who is deciding this because you have the circumcision group who are coming and saying, there is no salvation until you're circumcised. All right. Now, 
here's here, here's my understanding of what was happening in the first century. Uh, Yahusha criticized the Pharisees because they, well, among many things, but one of the things he criticized was that they would send missionaries out all over the world. And they would uh, proselytize and they would make Pharisees out of them. He said, you would make someone worse than you. There's a lot, you know, that can be said about what it is to make someone worse than who they were. But I suspect that what was happening was that the, the circumcision people were going around saying, if you get circumcised, uh, you can enter into the promises of Yah. And a lot of people are like, okay, I'll get circumcised. You know, you see it like with uh, in Genesis with, uh, uh, you know, over, um, over Dinah, you know, and all that, where they got circumcised and then they all got killed. They, they agreed to circumcision too. And it actually wasn't that uncommon. Uh, and I'll explain in a second. And so you go get circumcised. All right, I'm saved. I'm good to go. And then they go back into the pagan temples. They go into a worse lifestyle. Um, and they're just worse off than before. And what really, I'll say it again, what tripped me out is seeing that Paul's entire philosophy in his letters, some of you might disagree with me on this, though, it comes from Acts 15 through the mouth of Yaakov. He's saying, he's saying, look, we'll get to all this stuff. We'll get them circumcised, all this kind of stuff. The first thing we need to do is bring them into the fold, and then we will work on their hearts. Because they realize that you can't just circumcise someone and they're good to go. You have to circumcise the heart. And, um, and so I think that if everyone in this room right now, you reflect back on your life, your sinful life. And some of you might have just, you know, you, know, you lived a horrid life as a pagan and all of a sudden you just come into it and you're on fire a guy like me who grew up in it in a parsonage with a pastor for a father it is a lifelong process of coming into deeper understanding of this and always feeling like the father was was uh was guiding me that the, the royal calculus was guiding me and you know you get to the certain steps of, of obedience of like i want to take deeper steps of obedience that comes straight from yaakov in my opinion all right, and and if we can if we can grasp this, that that was the argument at stake. All right, what what Paul is saying in some of his letters is like, look, all you people who think that 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 salvation comes through circumcision, I've got guys over here who aren't circumcised yet, and they're obeying the Torah better than you are. That's what he's saying. And some of us with that freaks us out, like, what were you saying, Paul? That, you know, circumcisions of uh, null and void, and you know, some of his language does look that way. But I kind of, I don't know. This is what I'm trying to figure out and kind of grasp and, and look at more. I think that these are the conversations that were being had at that time. So um, I don't want to take all night on this because I want to get on to Genesis Targum. Does anybody else have anything? Yeah, I had one more thing. Um, I think you did a great job showing um, that common thread going through. And I think it kind of leaned on the idea that... Uh, uh, Pharisees and such, they knew what they were saying was a lie. Like they knew, they knew better. They knew they were lying. But when you look at Paul and even Peter, they might have been wrong on some things, but the Spirit eventually corrected them on those things. And you see that their heart was still right with God, whether or not they were wrong. Like even Peter, when he wouldn't sit with Gentiles to eat, they might have been wrong on some things, but their heart was still right with Yah, and they still wanted to do what was right. They were just wrong in their mind about what was right. But once Yah showed them the answer, they immediately obeyed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and 
I have to admit that when I was, there's so much stuff in Acts I want to get into. I, I have to admit that one of the things that I highly criticized Paul for was over the book of Galatians and Paul and Peter, you know, scooting his chair out and that kind of stuff. And I, I kind of saw that as, uh, um, you know, Peter judging Paul and exposing him. But when you read it in context of the book of Acts, where Peter was shown that the the vision of the animals on the sheet, which I also wrote about in the Torah Bides, I should read about, I should uh, read it off, was, of course, as you guys know, it was not about eating uh, gorillas and elephants and uh, and pigs. It was about um, dining with with the Gentiles, and it made abundantly clear. And so you do see in that scene in uh, Galatians, and I'm not I'm not supporting, uh, by the way, just so you guys know Paul's whole attitude. I do find that people who love Paul, they seem to kind of take his energy and they, they kind of push it back. Uh, and, you know, they can be very sometimes uh, unpleasant people. Uh, but uh, so I'm not I'm not. That's a whole nother discussion we can get into the, 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 the way Galatians is written. And, it you know, I don't see the Ruach HaKadosh in that. But if we're take in context with Acts, it does appear like in this case, even though we don't get Peter's side of the story, we get Paul's, that he was reverting on his decision to eat with the with the Gentiles. Um, so, okay, uh, one last question or comment. Does anyone have one last comment, question? Anything? Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to make a, a comment here. I mean, um, like I came into Torah probably about 20 years ago. And um, back then there wasn't a lot of people obviously that were kind of into Torah. There was, you know, um, Bradford Scott and Monty Judah and Eddie Chumney and Michael Rood and stuff. And, and I had a lot of friends at that time that actually um, renounced Yahusha at that time, like, because, you know, people were kind of following into Judaism and, you know, not saying, okay, well, Yahusha wasn't, you know, he said it was, you know, this or that. I'm just not going to go into details. I mean, everybody kind of probably knows about that. And then you get the other side of the coin of Paul. And I know a couple of weeks ago we had talked about that. And I had said that I respected you for coming out and stating that, you know, that you were kind of rethinking all of those things. And I had quite a few friends at that time that had renounced Yahusha and never did come back to him. And it really, really broke my heart. And at the time it really challenged me because they were challenging me about who Yahusha said he was. And it took me probably about two years to really sift through the scriptures and, you know, just really asking Yahuwah, okay, it, like, is he who he said he was? Because I don't want to be worshiping a false god or anything like that, because my heart was truly sincere. And and I've seen that over the time with, with Paul, that people will, you know, do the opposite. They'll take Paul's word over Yahusha's and then they, they say, okay, well, I'm throwing out Paul. And then they end up throwing Yahusha out anyways in, in the long run. And I know that Justin Bass has done the same thing. And and I mean, look where he is now. He doesn't even believe in Yahuwah at all. And it's really um, heartbreaking to see, um, to see these people that are giving up on all of it altogether to, over these... Um, <laughs> it's just so sad and it breaks my heart to see and I, and I pray for these people and I've been praying for Justin and asking Yahuwah to just really bring him back into the fold and I don't know Justin but I it really breaks my heart to see these things and to see these people who are renouncing Yahusha who are throwing Paul out and like I said a couple of weeks ago they're letters we don't take um 
Paul's letters over Yahusha's words. Uh, we know that Yeh just like you said earlier, Yahusha's is pretty clear in, in what he said and what he did and how he came and that he didn't get, give up the, the law, that he was following everything that his father had given him. And I think that if you read that, it's pretty clear. But um, we shouldn't be taking any of these people over anything because they're letters and we should look at it as that. And we should be looking to Yahuwah and Yahusha and, um, and just kind of being discerning of these things. But I really appreciate uh, your heart in all of this. And um, I will continue to pray that Yahuwah will continue to help cultivate all this in everybody's heart as they continue to work out their own salvation. I know you guys are getting ready to jump into the target, but I just wanted to jump off of uh, what you just said there. That was that was really good. Um, brilliant, even. And it made me think about something that I was sharing with one of our friends uh, recently who we met here in Georgia. Um, and we even we even went to her church and got to experience a service there. And then we, we shared with her our thoughts on that. And to your point, these letters are are written to a specific audience, like Lee is saying in the chat. But I was using First Timothy as um, as an example. It's a letter written to Timothy, and it's being called Scripture for us to live by two thousand years later. And I just think that's a problem. So. I'm going to close on this note and then we're going to move on with the night because Michael is waiting patiently. And thank you, Michael. Uh, and I started out talking, I gave the name John Pounders. I didn't give that as gossip presenter because he gave really good advice. And he told me about, you know, holding off for a couple of years before I came out with it. And that's, that's excellent advice because the guy in my position, uh, you know, I, I get these, I, I come across these ideas and I get really excited. I just want to write them up and tell people about them. And, um, and, so when it came to the what I called this Antichrist spirit, now I want to be really clear, guys, that if you guys deny Paul, I am not calling you that. Okay, you got like I'm not I'm not trying to create division here or anything like that. I hope we're an open group. I don't think about whether you know when we were when we were doing the diaspora with uh, Rob and Michael and Rob and Michael would quote from Paul and stuff. And I was like, yes, awesome. You know, I, I didn't want to quote from him, but I really liked that they did. And, and, you know, pushing this idea that we, you know, we can all have our ideas and put them out there. Um, anyways, when I was in that, I say antichrist movement because it was, it was very dark. And as you guys know, many people turned away, many, many people. And uh, the, the damage is just unbelievable that was done. And I was, I'll give you guys a, a movie quote. Some people think I shouldn't talk about Hollywood movies uh, on Sabbath, but I do think this is a really great example. Everyone here has seen Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. And at the end of the movie, uh, Luke Skywalker goes before the Emperor and he doesn't want to, you know, cut down his father. And, uh, and he keeps getting tempted by the dark side and eventually the, the dark side kind of overpowers him. And, you know, like he and Darth Vader are equal fighters and strength from the light and the dark, you know, dualism, all that. He, he turns to the dark side, he becomes greater in strength than his father and he cuts him down. But then he's like, he looks at him and goes like, he throws his lightsaber down. He's like, no, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not going to do this anymore. Right. And, and, you know, he's electrocuted as a result. Well, it was a similar situation for me because. The, the the temptations that were coming my way to deny Messiah, guys, 
I was having so many people come at me uh, who were like, okay, you've denied Paul. Now let's, you know, go take it to the next logical step. And, you know, they, a lot of the anti-Paul people, I'm, I'm not, I'm not villainizing you guys, but this, this was a legitimate thing, guys. It was an anti-Christ movement. And I was in conversations with people where uh, it was like people started uh, accusing me, uh, a certain person, um, and I was in, in this person's home and accusing me of just all these things of like, I can't bring logic to this. I can't prove logically anymore, theologically, whatever, that Yahusha even existed. And it finally got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I, I'm sorry, I can't. I cannot prove that he existed. I can't prove that he's the Messiah. I can't, but I choose to believe. Despite everything you're telling me, I choose to believe that he is the truth, that he is the word, the Torah. And, you know, I was despised for that. But the thing is, is that when you, when you go through these dark situations like that, and you and you choose, you know, you 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 don't just throw it away because you have these questions and you can't explain something right away. You come out the other end, and it all becomes more clear to you. Um, and now, of course, Yahushua's Messiah is clearer than ever before. But in that moment, my mind was so muddied and darkened, and that I didn't even realize. Like when you're watching Return of the Jedi, you're like, "No, Luke, you're being tempted. Don't do it." But see, in that moment, he didn't realize he was being tempted. He didn't realize it, right? You as the audience see it, but he didn't see the draw. And that's what it's like. And so I just want to encourage everyone here to, um, to not just, you know, when you can't explain something and you're like, oh no, Yahushua's pagan, you know, he's Bacchus or whatever. Take it to the Father, you know, set it aside, you know, keep at it. And these, you know, you, then you look back and you're like, man, my mind was really muddied. It was really, it was really dark in there. I'm so glad I stuck with it because a lot of people, they hand themselves over to the darkness and they're gone. It is so tragic. Mm -hmm.